Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Well, welcome to season four, episode two of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined today by Ernice Williams, who is my first nurse and lawyer, y'all, and I'm so excited to have her on. Ernice is an experienced nurse and attorney that works with organizations to create systemic change. As a pro-sci change management expert, she uses this process to break down the goals of the organization and create sustainable and cost-effective plans of action. Additionally, her training allows executives, leaders, and other stakeholders to manage their fear of change, really important, expand their perspective, discover opportunities, and utilize present resources to get to the intended goal, excuse me. Ernice uses this process to address implicit bias, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as planned structural or cultural changes that may impact large amounts of people within the organization. As a graduate of Howard University and the Howard University School of Law, Ernice serves as an architect of social change for both the clients whom she serves in her private practice, as well as in her organizational training. Ernice hopes to empower more people and organizations to embrace change and use it as a tool to become more effective and efficient. Ernice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. So really quickly, I found Ernice on Twitter of all places because I've literally become more involved in what's going on with Twitter and nurses on Twitter, just seeing things, maybe not responding right away, but just taking it all in. And the things that Ernice offers on Twitter are really remarkable, really thoughtful, and kind of makes you step back and think about things. And then she said, hey, y'all, I have my LinkedIn messages open, connect with me on here, because she literally wants to help make you a better nurse. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to like, you know, just pounce on her messages right away. But I am going to connect with her and just see if she's open to maybe doing an episode on my podcast to really teach about certain things. So we're going to get into a lot of different of different items today. And at the end, we're going to talk about one of the important things that as a new nurse, as a nurse graduate, you're going to have to focus on, which is patient charting. Mm-hmm. So my favorite question and first question of everything, Ernest, is why did you become a nurse? Yeah, so growing up, I used to live with my grandparents and they were elderly and they always like, my grandmother had like diabetes, my grandfather had heart disease. And so I was always with them at the doctor. Um, And I loved the doctor. Like I loved going with them to the doctor. I don't ever remember a nurse being there. I just always remember the doctor. (laughs) Um, But we used to always have like nurses aides and um, nurses come to the house after they had like been hospitalized. And when they were hospitalized, we would, I would go sit with them for a while and everyone was just so nice. Like people were really understanding that, you know, these were essentially like my parents. Like I love them. And I was like six or seven and they were like 60, uh, but I love them so much. And they just created so much space and room for me to heal and deal with like all the things that they were going through. So I decided I wanted to become a nurse. I went to college to become a nurse. Um, um, like Howard doesn't necessarily have a separate program. You kind of just, as long as you start there, you can come matriculate through as long as you have all your courses. So I didn't have to test in and do all those things that other schools do. Oh, wow. So, I mean, but I still missed one class and had to take an extra lap around. So, which was fine. Okay. It was fun. 
had a good time that year. I was able to party and hang out and meet people. Um, and so I got into nursing school and I loved it. I love people. I hated nursing school as far as like the work, like right. the test. I, I just, I can't, but the patient care, oh my goodness, clinical was my favorite. So I really love nursing and I don't even know how I got into becoming, like, I think I just applied to two programs my um, extern year. One was for the ED, one was for the OR. And the lady who interviewed me for the OR was just so nice that I was like, oh, I'll just come work here. And so I ended up starting my career in the OR. That's awesome. So so the OR is is literally all about patients until they, they go to sleep, until they wake up. Um, so I imagine that that was kind of a really match made in heaven sort of thing. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience in the OR. Was it something that you had always wanted to do, or was there something that kind of drove you to maybe start there and think about something else in nursing? Yeah. So I thought I wanted to be a pediatric nurse. I did my pediatric clinical and I was like, Ooh, no, like I can't think about that crying. Um, the parents, you know, not that they were all bad, but it's like, there's their baby. And so it was just a lot of people in the room, a lot of emotion in the room. And for me, it's like, I just want to come in and take care of the patient and kind of, you know, go, go to the next patient. And then sometimes you just have to be really sensitive in those spaces. And I just didn't, I don't have the capacity for that. So I realized it's very important to know that it's important. And so I was like, mm, scratch, scratch that off the list. So I was unsure after that because I'm the kind of person when I have a plan, I usually only have a plan A. I don't come with the plan B or C. Um, so when I didn't have a plan B or C, I was like, well, let me just figure out who's hiring so that I can have a job. Um, and then when I applied to the externship in the ED, they were filming a television show. And she was like, oh, do you, would you be comfortable being on this television show? And I was like, um, okay like why not right and then I got to the orient the interview on the OR and this lady was like then you should come there aren't a lot there's not a lot of diversity in the OR it's a great experience you get to see things up close and all like she just made it sound so cool yeah and I was like well I like cool stuff so you know the the ED and the OR completely totally different worlds were both really beneficial to learning um and so I chose the OR got in there loved it I loved the skill I was a you start off as a scrub tech um before you finish as a nurse and so I got to learn all the instruments and to see the inside of people's bodies and like see miracles happen and so I I thought it was a you know a great place but after a while I didn't feel that I had the connection to the patients that I wanted I was able yeah. to come in and interview them and make sure they understood their consent and you know spend maybe 10 minutes with them if that and then it was like you know hurrying them in the room getting yeah. them off to sleep and then putting them in the PACU and so I missed the patient connection. So after three years, I decided to leave and go to the PACU. Awesome. And was the PACU as insane as our PACU is? Because <laughs> the PACU, oh, yes. PACU nursing is full of like everybody for those listening. Yeah. So I started in pre-op PACU. So I, a lot of that PACU I did was like outpatient. So people were coming in for ortho surgeries and going home same day. Um, it was one of the best places for me because I was able to realize how much I loved people. So the times where I was able to spend time with patients and because patients would come down early or their surgeries would get delayed and I could really talk to them and understand like while they were coming there, I had a, um, and the, the patient that kind of like changed my life and made me go to get a, a law degree was mm-hmm. someone who came in who was uh, an educated, like he had, he had a PhD, he was a teacher, he was just got a job as a principal. He had Uh, lost his job and was like just in transition. So he lost his insurance, went to the doctor, found out he had diabetes, but he was going to a free clinic. And he said they were so rude to him that he just never returned. Mm -hmm. And so he had his, his diabetes just got out of control. He got a a small nick on his leg that turned into a huge wound that forced him to get an amputation. 
Wow. And I was like, what? Like, it just yeah. hit, like, I was like, like, this is not someone who did not know better. This isn't right. someone who didn't have access. It was literally just how he was treated. And yeah. I was like, this isn't acceptable. Like, we cannot... Yeah. Like an amputation is such a big deal. It is not something that is just simple and easy and you fix the problem. There's so much pain and treatment and recuperation that comes with that. And then especially I worked in DC and DC, there are not a lot of accessible places, although it, everything is supposed to be accessible. A lot of the restaurants are extremely small. Like a lot of times the, the subway, the train, you know, the elevator doesn't work. Like, so how are people getting around? There's so many challenges. And so I was now like, okay, what can I do? What do I want to do to make sure that this doesn't happen to other people? And that's why I ended up deciding to go to law school. That's insane. I mean, what a great story though, to really fuel your journey to deciding on, you know, making the place better for patients that don't have access, that don't have, you know, the right people to go to and prevent people from literally taking a scab and turning it into an amputation, which could have been prevented in, in, in the entire place. You know, mm -hmm. you think about these things and I relate to them so much in terms of how do we prevent serious injury in the hospital, right? But we don't often think about how do we prevent serious injury in the community and what those things look like. And perhaps because it's so, it's, it involves a lot of different pieces, but it's just as important to help prevent serious injury from somebody that could have avoided this amputation in the first place, you know? Yeah, it's real. So, so now quick question, mm -hmm. law school, you have to take the LSATs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Was that challenging? Like, cause I would probably like spend my entire life as a hermit trying to study for the LSATs and then attempting into law school right? Talk me through that process of what getting into law school was like. Yeah. So I'm a plan A type of person. I really don't make, like I applied to one college and I was like, if I don't get in, I'm gonna go to the military. Like I just, I don't make a lot of backup plans. I didn't, I don't say like, what if this is going to happen? Like I just say, this is going to happen. This is what I'm doing when I go after it. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's a little ballsy. Like sometimes it's maybe not the best thing to do. So like I, I envy people who are like, if this doesn't work out, I have like all of these backup options. So I like was like, I'm taking the LSAT one time and whatever I get, I'm just going to apply with. Yeah. Um, my score wasn't super high. I've never been, I used to be super smart, like in high school, but like <laughs> college, I just, I got by. <laughs> And you can be successful if you're just getting by sometimes, right? Like, don't yes, absolutely. I'm right. super no judgments. <laughs> um, so I'm what I call, I hold the class up. Like I'm never at the bottom, but I'm, I'm in the middle. And so that, that's where my score, my score landed. Yeah. But the beauty and the same thing, well, actually for my SATs and ACTs, but the beauty of, of, of applying to law school or anything is like, you always have a story to tell. Mm -hmm. And I use my storytelling skills to write a very compelling letter about how nurses, and healthcare workers and patients need me to be a lawyer so that I can save the world. And I got in. <laughs> I got That's amazing. <laughs> yes, they need me. They deserve me. And I was the only nurse in my class. Um, I got into actually a few law schools and one was even offering um, scholarship, but I wanted to go back to kind of a place that was like home to me. So Howard yeah. and he was home. So I wanted to stay close in the area. So I ended up going right back to Howard. Um, but yeah, storytelling is definitely how I probably accomplished most of my success. Yeah. Definitely not based on, on merit. <laughs> yeah. But that, listen, that's okay because people, people need stories because it fuels their purpose in life. Mm -hmm. And purpose is one of those things that I think sometimes as, as nurses, you can lose 
especially if you're like lost in the staff nursing of realm right now. I mean, I see a lot of people that are struggling right now with their purpose of being a staff nurse, just because of how things are. Mm -hmm. And you had one story and you were like, I don't care what, what anybody says, I'm getting into law school and this is what it's going to be. And if I don't get to law school, I'm going to join the military, which is also pretty, pretty boss because, you know, to go into the military is probably just as, you know, difficult mentally as it is to get into law school. You know what I mean? It's not like these things are easy. <laughs> these things take a lot of work. And even though you're kind of like, yeah, I'm a plan A person, but you're, you just go for it and just like, boom, do it. And, and, and obviously excel at it, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, law, anyone who's yeah. looking to get into law school, because there actually have been a lot of nurses who reach out, just take the LSAT once. Like it's not as cost, like it's not super expensive, but you want to kind of know where you are. There's this fake, you know, um, assumption that you're, there are some ways that are people who are naturally good. There are some people yeah. who can take the test and they get in the 180s. There are some people who have to take it over and over. But I feel like sometimes as nurses, we feel like we're only smart at one thing. Like, oh, I'm only good at clinical. I'm only good at being a nurse. And that's not true. Some of you guys are math wizards. Some of you guys are really good um, with some of the other skills that, that they take. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we just need to be super conscious of not limiting our thinking because we fit feel that we fit in a box because anybody can go to law school, engineers, English teachers, whomever. So be open to the fact that if that's what you want to do, just like start grabbing the tools and go after it. Yes. And people need you as nurses, as lawyers, y'all. Yes. Heard it from her niece. Yeah. People needed her and they do. I yeah. see it all. I see it online on her website. We'll get to it. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So just don't be afraid and go for it. Yeah. So throughout uh, law school, from what I'm assuming through on your CV, you held a a lot of really cool positions. You were a yeah. judicial intern for the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, mm -hmm. and then a law clerk for two separate areas, um, Howard University Office of General Counsel, which has to be really cool, Health Sciences, mm -hmm. and then the law office of Stephen E. Bullock, excuse me if I'm butchering your name, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> what was that like? Because I, I I have a friend that had, that had gone through law school and they've they did their clerkship through a, a, an office of law, but what is that like? Yeah, so honestly, once I matriculated into law school, it was like, whoa, like, you're so cool. Like, you're, you're a nurse and, and like, you're gonna be a lawyer. And so people wanted me and to work with me for the knowledge that I had. So when I worked in the Court of Appeals, a case came up that was very much healthcare related. And so the judge who, she was just amazingly nice, but a lot of times judges don't necessarily talk to their clerks or their, their interns or things like that. And she was like, I need you to tell me like, from what perspective, you know, I should approach this because this is what the law says. But I understand like clinically, this is what, like there has to be something that's missing. And so we had a very in-depth conversation. I think it had to do something about like sick cell crisis and like what would make someone to go into sick cell crisis and how would they know and all these kind of things. So, um, you know, I was able to bring my expertise as a nurse to this very narrowly um, argued issue and give the judge an, a, a perspective to be empathetic to the family because I think that's what was missing in the whole story. And the same thing when I worked in the Office of General Counsel, it was like they loved having me there because I had a perspective that none of their um, lawyers or interns or clerks had before was that I was a nurse. And so I could read through a chart faster. I could assess and analyze things quicker. You know, we could have deeper conversations about what ifs and, and, and a lot, they allowed me to sit at tables to 
be a part of conversations that I probably wouldn't have been a part of if I didn't have a nursing background. Um, and then working with with uh, attorney Bullock, he's actually my mentor to this day. I've been out of law school for forever. Uh, he was one of the first attorneys that were like, "No, you're you're gonna you're gonna be a star." Like he was like you're dope and I was just like ah, blah, like whatever you know <laughs> um and literally the first case that came across his desk when I arrived in his office um I just did a quick chart review wrote out like a report and he like won a million dollars for that for that client and he was like oh we in the money like <laughs> this is it so um you know I think that we feel that we're not bringing a lot to the table but at the end of the day your expertise is needed in so many different spaces and so many different places. Like healthcare is everywhere and the impact of healthcare is everywhere, like way beyond just a hospital or, or a clinical setting. It's happening in real life and in real time. And we kind of need to be in those places to make sure that people are making equitable decisions um, based on knowledge and not kind of just on feelings or emotions. That's awesome. So question, did you get paid during that time? <laughs> well the office of the general counsel I was paid it was actually a paying internship but most yeah. internships and clerkships are not paid and like yeah. not only are they not paid like you have to still like pay your way to get there you have Ooh, to pay for yeah. parking you have to pay for food and you're just like I'm so tired of being broke like it, yeah. it's a tough That's thing hard. um yeah so it, it definitely can be challenging um what at the end of this the time like the end of the year when I worked with uh Stephen Bullock he gave me like he paid for like a portion of my um he paid for a portion of my the bar exam so that I could you know have a little extra money because I had worked with him and helped him win that case so and over the years we've worked together and done some other big cases together so you never know like I think unpaid internships can be very difficult um you figure out how you supplement them but they can be beneficial yeah, I can only imagine, like, because I literally had have no clue if you get paid or not paid for these things, you know, obviously not a lawyer, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think about so many people that do internships and, and clerkships, and even like, I think of friends that go through medical school, mm-hmm. and they have to pay their way through all of these experiences that they want to get in, have to fly themselves to interviews, have mm-hmm. to pay for their hotel stay. And I'm like, this seems a little absurd <laughs> that you have to like finance your way from the start of school till the point where you're ready to apply for residency in the example of medicine and you literally have to you know afford it somehow yeah I just can't even imagine oh yeah it's it's definitely it's definitely a challenge so if you're transitioning or thinking of transitioning out of healthcare, I always say like I kept my per, my job as a per diem nurse as long as I could and then I did like vaccines and you know just other ways to supplement like don't forget that you have a skill set that's valuable and there are other ways that you can kind of make money if that's working on the weekends or, you know, doing triage or whatever the case may be while you're up studying, like figure out ways to kind of fund it so that you're not so stressed. That's a very good point. I'm glad you brought it up because those things, those per diem things, maybe you take like a travel contract, but, but like locally to your area really can help supplement some of the things like your food or yeah. your gas for that week. If you don't live in like DC and you don't get around um by what is their public transport system called the metro the metro thank you <laughs> i love the stations i don't like yeah. the streets sometimes the stations yeah. are beautiful yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah um so then one of the more interesting things at least i think is i'm a policy geek and i love reading about health insurance and how it how it interacts with people is you were at a policy intern for the national council for behavioral health yeah. what an impressive experience because you 
have contributed to comments that successfully prevented proposed changes to Medicare Part D that would have detrimentally affected mental health patients, analyzed provisions for the Affordable Care Act, which was huge, mm -hmm. Excellence Act and Mental Health Parity Act, and presented an analysis to the staff and members of the National Council for Strategic Planning. Yeah. That sounds like an experience that I probably would have died after yeah. because of how robust that sounds. It was definitely an amazing experience. Um, I think I knew, I knew the power of policy and politics, but I didn't know the power of like crowdfunding and not as far as like money, but like just like they consider it like crowdfunding and crowdsourcing as well when you're sending out blast emails to get people to take action. And so there were systems set up like people could sign up for reminders or text messages and be like, we need you to call your senator and like a blast will go out to very specific people. And it was like all this tech stuff involved. And I was like, whoa, like there's a machine behind many of the decisions that are being made in this country. And the machines are funded by private, public funding, <clears throat> grants, like all kinds of stuff. But understanding that every decision that is made, there are machines behind them, whether they're being made in the benefit or in the detriment of our communities. And so we need to know what these machines are and be a part of the machines if there's something that align with our value system, or at least be in a position to stand up and speak up on the other side. And so I was very surprised to see how powerful this mental health community, although so small, was able to keep these changes from happening just based on their strategic planning and really you know, leveraging and utilizing their community to speak up and to make sure that people knew that this was gonna be a problem and how it was gonna impact them or their community. Um, and so, yeah, it was really good. And that was another thing where they were like, oh, you're a nurse, like tell us about this or tell yeah. us about that. So um, there's just so much that we can, so much value that we can add to so many conversations, whether it's in-house counsel, whether it's medical malpractice or personal injury, but also policy. There's so much power in policy and there's so many decisions that are made in policy, politics and in policy that we're not a part of. And the end result then harms us or our patients. And we didn't even know that they were coming up the pipeline. So um, yeah, that, that, that position was a big eye-opener as to like how powerful you can be even if you're small but as long as you're organized yeah that sounds like a like kind of like a back burner as you will to how you became um, certified in change management because I think of like you know strategic planning leveraging the community um, literally this past election cycle was that right and mm -hmm. like what a powerful moment to then say to yourself, yeah, I could do this and I could also do this for organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, at the last job I was managing um, a federal, at a federally qualified healthcare center, which is basically um, a community organization that services underserved and marginalized communities, but it's fully funded by the federal government. So we are in the heart, we, like I live in Atlanta now, but we were in the heart of the Bronx, the South Bronx. There are 62 counties in New York. They are number 62 of 62 wow. for outcomes maternal mortality rates, asthma, anything, any measure, they're always last. Um, and because of that, we just had a lot of issues that we had to deal with as an organization to service this population, to make sure that they felt supported and included. And a lot of it was education on our end of our staff who was also from that community. Yeah. So 
yes, we want to hire people from the community to take care of those in the community, but they also come with their own stigmas, their own biases, their own challenges. Um, and then they also come with this, like, I'm not them, like a separatist, like, you know, issue or elitist, like, well, I'm a working person and I have private health insurance, like they're Medicaid and I'm not. And so really, you know, my, my boss who actually happens to be a nurse and a lawyer. So she was so surprised to meet me. She was a lawyer first and then became a nurse. And she realized like, I could take that uh, training and bring it back to our organization and really begin to develop some things. Um, So I took that training. It was one of the best things I've ever been able to, I was able to do to really invest in myself, to learn how to create change in a organization like that is impactful and long lasting. I think this last year and just these past few years for us as a generation, and I think I'm a geriatric millennial, I think that's what they're calling us now on TikTok. I don't know. I I was like, I'm not sure where I stand at this point, but I'm I'm a millennial. Um, I feel like a millennial is a young, but I'm like, I'm not that young. But same, um, same, right? And but I feel like we have requested change. People have spoken up for change. We know that there needs to be change, and this is not even just politics. Like this is in every aspect of our life. And yet we see people say they're going to change and then like things don't really happen the way that we think so, right? So people are saying, oh, nurses are heroes, nurses are this. And now it's like, do your job, show up to work. Like, it's like, wait, like y'all want to change. And so we became heroes and some of us had to step away so we could take care of ourselves or our families. And some of us had to, you know, leave our regular jobs to go travel or take on other opportunities or whatever the case may be. And then there's like, so understanding that change just doesn't come up by speaking up change comes by controlling the narrative by controlling the system that is actually creating the change and so we sometimes feel like once we make a statement about like this is who we are and this is what we want that change is going to happen but like I said change is a machine and whoever is behind the change is the person who's going to get the end result we miss out on so many opportunities as nurses um, because we are not a part of the process. We're not a part of change. And so one of the things that I've been able to do is to utilize my change management experience is to educate and empower nurses to get involved in the process. So like now, whenever this is released, we may still be, this day still may be available, but I'm talking to nurse practitioners um, and other providers about telemedicine. Telemedicine is not permanent. The way that we have access to it now, telemedicine has been around for a long time. It has been an option for rural communities. It has been used a lot in specific settings and communities, but not very well paying and not as accessible as it is now. No. And we, also it's still stuck up in like the dial-up zone of accessing people. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of jump in here, mm-hmm. uh, during the pandemic, like the height of it, when we had our hospital had a lockdown where no visitors were allowed, mm-hmm. we our unit has telehealth capabilities. However, what we realized was that you can't have more than one person using the telehealth t- TV because because you can't like <laughs> because can't. not because you can't <laughs> because y'all never use it, so you only ever needed it for one person at a time. Right. <laughs> right. Well, but also because the system is developed so that like it kind of blocks everybody else out so it's literally like you're you know you're sitting there 1996 style um and your mom needs to use the phone and she can't use the phone because you're on the internet that's exactly they don't know nothing about that they don't they don't i'm sorry um i am a geriatric millennial 
but literally when the internet was first rolled out to the public <laughs> let's, let's start with a history lesson so back back in the day right when i was like 14 i think i don't even know uh, you had the internet, right, people? And you you had to buy a CD, actually, to have the internet on your computer. And then you had to hook up your own special phone cord that does, that these, these don't exist either, phone cords, uh, because no one really has dial-up anymore. But you had to connect your home phone to the internet and block out phone calls that would come into the house, right? And so if you were dialing up, which is what we used to do, and it was a whole thing, it was like this tune and you got excited when it would connect because <laughs> sometimes it would take like 20 minutes and you're like, why can't I connect to the internet? And then you're sitting there waiting and you're like, mm -hmm. and then you get just happy about connecting to the internet. So, um, and then if you were connected to the internet, nobody else could call you. Nobody else could interact with you in the house because it blocked phone lines. Yeah. So, so for those listening, <laughs> that's what the internet was. And in some ways still is because we, I remember that we needed to move to another patient because we had to schedule people for time to talk to their family. And it was a great way for them to connect. Like it really lessened a lot of the stress uh, that we felt, that patients felt, that families felt. But if somebody was quote unquote hogging the telehealth screen, you needed to kind of kick them off politely to say, hey, my patient down the hallway needs to, needs to use the internet, oh, needs to use the telehealth really um, to, to connect with their family. So in some cases, it is still uh, not even like equitable, right? Exactly. And, and the only reason why they would make it equitable if it becomes permanent. So there's legislation that's coming up now deciding if this is going to become permanent, if it's beneficial, asking for comments and data. And so I shared with some of my community, like y'all submit the comments, just all you, do is, all you gotta do is click the link, submit your comments for this, because at the end of the day, if they don't hear from practitioners, they don't hear from patients, and they're only hearing from people who are missing out on the money. Yes which are the machines, right? The big, large companies who are saying, oh, no, 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 in-person is better. Like people are not getting screened appropriately and things are not being done appropriately. No, that right? And so that's why it's important to kind of be a part of this process and understand things from a greater perspective because it's so many decisions that are being made from it. Yes, do this people because, so real quickly, I'm in a DMP um, degree program at Penn and my um, whole thing has to do with stroke and the internet access that people have. And yeah. I, I still have to publish a, a ton of things. So, hey, you know, but essentially what I found was that, you know, internet access directly impacts stroke outcomes. And I'm not talking about like, you know, I have my cell phone and there's Wi-Fi. That's actually a different type of internet that impacts healthcare for everybody. So I think what you like of, of you, when you're telling your story about the Bronx and yeah. these 62 different communities and counties, how might they use Wi-Fi? It's, pro it's probably the only thing they, they might use. I, I don't know, right? But how yeah, is that impacting the, the way that they receive their education? Because mm -hmm. education received on a cell phone is not the same way as education on, on a website, on a computer. And if you don't have any kind of like broadband internet, it really impacts these health outcomes. So oh, I can only imagine that like the comments of saying, you know, about the money, if it's, if it's feasible, is that's complete BS because what really needs to happen is that we need to focus on broadband stuff because that would literally fix everything. You know, yeah. if you get people access and allow it to be affordable and allow it to be accessible in rural areas, in cities that have like a lot of like apartment complexes yeah. and, you know, like row homes, because a lot of times even the power sources are not equitable. 
you know, you would have a whole different world and probably have just a healthier county. Sorry, that was a little tangent there, but. Oh, I love it. It's so true. And that's why we don't understand how deeply things are intertwined. It's and so we have to ex- expand our mind and our mindset beyond what we're seeing in front of us and understand that our voices are needed in so many different places. Yes, so I absolutely. Love that. Mm-hmm. love that. What a great little, little comment, commentary we just had there. Sorry. Okay, so after your policy internship, uh, you then moved to Texas and yeah. became a case manager um, and also were a clinical liaison to hospice. So, oh, sorry, f- for both hospice places. I'm sorry. Um, what was that like in t- Texas? A, it's a very hot state to move to. <laughs> B, <laughs> so hot. There's a lot of bugs too. I don't ever want to move to Texas. But what was that like living in Texas and, and, and being that nurse there? Yes, I grew up there for a little while. So I was a little bit familiar. I had some friends and relationships there. I moved back to Texas to get away from the East Coast. It just, the East Coast can be a grind and I was tired of grinding. I needed to relax. And so I went there, um, a a friend connected me with someone who in hospice and I had never considered hospice. And I was like, I can do it. I can do just about anything. So um, I went there and I actually loved hospice. It's been one of my favorite jobs, my favorite experiences. One, because you have a lot of autonomy with your schedule. You could do and work whatever you need, hours you need to work as long as you're seeing your patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the death part, right, people are like, what about death? I'm like, death is only traumatic in the sense of like, it happens in a traumatic way. Like we think yeah. that everyone dies traumatically, Yes. which isn't true. Most people die very peacefully yeah. in their homes or in their beds or even in the hospital. Um, and so I think because we've been in a condition that to believe that uh, death is trauma, that we don't see hospice as a space of healing. Mm-hmm. And so because I'm a very spiritual person, I was able to go into that space and really connect with families and be like, okay, we know the end is coming how are we going to, how are we going to deal with this, right? We know that this young mother is dying. How are we going to support her? Um, We understand that like you got this really bad diagnosis and you may only have a week to live. How can we make the most of it? How can we make you comfortable? And when you focus and approach death that way, death is easier to deal with. Never easy, never perfect, but it's easier to manage. And so that's kind of what I did there. And I loved, oh my goodness, I love that job. We got lots of ups and downs. Hospice is probably one of the uh, biggest areas of fraud. Yes. <laughs> um, that in home health. But for what I was able to see and what I was able to do, I, I absolutely did enjoy the experience. So that's awesome. That's so great to hear. I had another guest on my podcast who was, who became a hospice nurse after working on a general med search floor, moved to Chicago and became a neuroscience ICU nurse. And then she was like, you know what? I kind of want to do hospice. And a lot of people don't understand hospice because they are not exposed to it 24 yep. seven, not even in clinical. Nope. Um, are you experienced hospice nurses and what they do and the power they have? It's kind of like a topic, but like, I wish people got to have a clinical day or clinical experience yeah. with a hospice nurse. It's so good. It would just be so good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because she loves her job. She's like, this is the best thing ever. I love the people that I work with. I love yeah. the families that I treat because yeah. they know they know the inevitable is going to happen and, you're, and they're not trying to prevent anything, but they're just trying to make it better. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, that's really all you can ask of, of people. Definitely. So then we moved you, you back to Baltimore, Maryland. We moved you. Yeah. I didn't move you. <laughs> um, you work for a university and we're a clinical instructor whoop, whoop, um, yeah, at a level one trauma center, which was great. How was that experience for you? 
yeah, that was my first time teaching. Um, I, I don't know. It was, it was not bad. It was just challenging. I think I'm just, I wasn't used to people being so casual. I was just like, "Mm." I mean, I just felt like when I was a clinical, I was just scared of everybody and everything and not scared of people, but just scared of like, just following the, I'm a rule follower. So that's just who I am. But people can be really casual nowadays. And I think that was very uncomfortable for me. Like, I'm like, this isn't our home. This isn't our space. We have to respect their space. We have to follow their rules. So that was some of the challenges. And then also like people are like, just like they knew what they were doing. Like, oh, I know. And I'm like, no, you, you may know what you're doing, but you still have to follow the protocol. Like the protocol is to check meds and now you've given someone a wrong med and now I got to write a report, right? Like, because <laughs> you, you so don't true. listen. And I'm just like, it, we got one patient. Like, <laughs> imagine you having four patients and you're not even listening to your, the pro, or following the protocols. Like you have to check the meds with the patient. The patient yeah. is awake. He can tell you what he takes and what he doesn't take, yeah. right? And so- that was challenging, but it, I learned a lot. And I think that I wish that clinical wasn't so like sectioned. I wish it was like a continual yes. process because I feel like people are just getting to the end. Like they're just like three more sessions, like two more. And it's like, yeah. we're not really giving you an experience of like what it is really like. We're just right. trying to give you enough clinical hours to get you through. And that to me can be challenging in a way. So it, it was a lot of lessons for me. Yeah. A lot of lessons for them. Um, and so, yeah, it was interesting. Hey, at least you had the experience. I still oh, yeah. am with the experience. So yeah. <laughs> I survived yeah. with it. But I, 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 I do agree that there's so many challenges sometimes in, in terms of like how you meet students and how mm-hmm. they learn. And mm-hmm. I don't know what they've, what they've been through. So full disclosure is what I provide the, the first day I meet my students. And I'm like, look, I don't know what you've been through with your other clinical instructors. I don't know what you know and what you don't know. So you need to let me know what you know or what you need help with. And I will lead you there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the one that's going to help you pass NCLEX. You're, you're doing that by yourself, right? Because it takes it, it it takes yourself to know where your, where your pros and cons are, weaknesses and all that good stuff and, and become that nurse that you you want to be. And it's, it had been a struggle before because I'm like, how do I motivate people just to not sit around and just you know, look at their patient. It's, mm-hmm. it's still a tr- struggle sometimes. Right. But ultimately it's, it's a pretty good experience. Yeah. I love it. Then you became a registered nurse again at a hospital yeah, in Baltimore, yeah. Maryland mm-hmm. in, is this in downtown Baltimore? Um, I was, so my, my, the clinical experience was in downtown Baltimore. Okay. Um, and then my, I, it's not downtown Baltimore. It's a little bit like uptown right before you get to the County. So, okay. um, yeah, it was a small suburban hospital. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I meet people and they put these hospitals on there, right? And then like downtown Baltimore is a crazy area to be a nurse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you um, like action, y'all, go work in like a downtown area, especially downtown Baltimore. You hit all the things. Everything. Okay. Everything you see. Yeah. And then the counties get a little bit less than that, but I assume because it's such a big area, it still has a lot of action mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. awesome yeah and then moved up to to the bronx (laughs) you've literally lived all over the country i love this and we're not only a nurse manager but also now a vaccine site coordinator 
Yeah. Are you still doing that as, as a coordination role? I'm, yeah, I'm finishing that up. So I spent a year travel nursing. I probably left that off somewhere. I don't know what I, I just be putting anything on my resume. <laughs> um, I traveled nurse for, I was a travel nurse for last year through the pandemic. I worked in, in New York and then I worked in Maryland. Um, and then I came back to my old job to run their vaccine clinic, which was supposed to close in October. I don't think it is. Um, yeah. We were busy um, April and May. We were dead, like 30 people a day. Wow. Dead with five, like 10 people sitting around from all of June, all of July, and like the first week of August. Uh, vaccines wow. were incentivized by the mayor. And then all of a sudden things got crazy. And it's been crazy for the past three weeks. So, and then now we've been FDA approved for the, we were given Pfizer vaccines, even crazier. And now mandates are coming down for teachers and healthcare workers, it's getting crazier. So um, yeah, I'm coordinating that. Uh, and it, I don't know, it's, coordination is a, a, a fun word, but I like, I like the opportunity because it get, gives me some balance, but I also feel like it was good when everyone was like trying to vaccinate because everyone was like looking for a side job, but then everyone went back yeah. to work because those jobs kind of died out. And now yeah. you're searching for people who are able to give vaccines and it's, it's been a struggle. So, yeah, um, which is a good thing, right? We want people to get vaccinated, but how we're going to vaccinate them, I think is also the question. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be a, an issue, a, a good issue, I should say, yeah. is that mandates are, are going to come down to teachers and to healthcare professionals because mm -hmm. we see very sick people, right? We yeah. see vulnerable people. Yeah. So I, I, su I support the mandate because you, you have to go and think of the people that come in with cancer. You have yeah. to, in, you know, go into it thinking of the people that come in with these really rare diseases that have no treatments, but we have like just kind of therapies to help lessen the severity of something. And these things can really escalate really quickly. And, and, and here we are, and we don't want that to happen. Exactly. So, so yeah, so that's my, my 50 cents on that whole, that whole piece right there. Right. So now, you know, alongside the coordination, you also are the law office of Ernest Williams Yay. and have been crafting specialized advice and developing creative concepts for businesses, healthcare organizations, and law firms mm -hmm. who seek to become a profitable six-figure business. Mm -hmm. You also offer training uh, on things like charting. Mm -hmm. And I think, I'm, I'm sure there's other training that, that, that you do or have yeah. done in the past, because it sounds like you have such great experience with not only change management that you, that you mentioned before, but also with different areas of healthcare that you've been involved in, policy, law, all that stuff. Um, so tell me a little bit about your practice of law and what that's like. Yeah, so I launched my practice like four or five years ago and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be med mal and PI like my mentor. I hated it. Like I liked assisting, but I didn't want to necessarily handle those type of cases. So I, then I continued my nursing journey. And then during the pandemic, you know, it felt like if you were going to dream, this was the time to dream because you ain't, you may not make it. And so I was like, well, now or never. And I relaunched my law practice, focusing on working with healthcare workers who are starting up health, healthcare or non-healthcare businesses, which now has expanded to any type of service provided providers or service-based business. 
um, to help people become successful and profitable. Um, I built my business while becoming a, while being a travel nurse. So that allowed me the leverage and the disposable income to invest in my business, but also the, the, the schedule and the flexibility to do so. Um, and so I'm able to serve all of my patients virtually. My practice has been virtual forever. It was always going to be virtual. I never was going to have a brick and mortar, um, but I'm able to meet with all my clients virtually. And then on top of that, I did courses and, and created some trainings and development for healthcare workers who are still in direct patient care to understand the legalities and what I call the intersection of health and the law. So where does healthcare kind of meet the legal elements of, you know, malpractice or the legal elements of, um, you know, billing or fraud or all of those different kinds of things. And so I do a lot of education on my social media pages, but I also do some webinars and some on-demand courses and eventually, hopefully, organizational um, training specifically on documentation and preventing um, malpractice. That's awesome. That's a, that's so much, but like, it's so smart to hear, you know, that you've literally taken the time to think about how you're going to build your business, but do it so that it benefits you, the business owner, mm-hmm. because that is so important to remember if you're starting any kind of business, that it has to benefit the owner, right? If you're going to serve people, you can't be he-man or he woman, excuse me, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, it needs to, you need to have your own time, time yeah. away, serve, uh-huh. serve with a purpose, but also take a break. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the big side of relief right there. I've been going for a year straight and I'm like, I'm tired. Is like building a business. I'm like, everybody can build a business. I'm just like, no, no, it's exhausting. I get why people don't do it. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work, Yeah, but it sounds smart enough that you kind of took this time to become a travel nurse Mm. and kind of like took advantage of the time, shall we say, and Mm. also had that disposable income that you can still maintain living somewhere and also invest in something that you're passionate about. Exactly. Definitely. So awesome. Yeah. So now we're going to do a deep dive uh, in charting. So there is a, there is a online system that our niece offers uh, through her website, which I'll put links in the show notes and stuff like that. I think it's like $37 or so. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a steal because I f- believe you get other, other things as well, like videos and like a bunch of other stuff to kind of really help you as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to go too much into like what the proprietary stuff is, but I do want to talk about maybe some tips that new nurses can take with them as they start their first job. Yeah. So I, I, I offer so many videos, so much content. I mean, anywhere you find me, there's information to be found, um, even if you're not ready to invest. And so there's a lot of free free videos. And I, uh, especially when I was travel nursing, because I had time to tell stories because I was away from my kids. So um, if you go back to my social media page, I tell all of the crazy stories of the things that were happening on the units and how they're applicable and how I kind of manage it. But when you talk well, my thing, right, my, my number one documentation tip is what I tell people is you want to document from a legal perspective. And what I mean by that is when you document for the health insurance company, that's one way. When you document for your organization, that's one way. And then when you document from a legal perspective, that's like a third way. How do you reconcile all that? Which way is right? Which way makes sense? My view is that if the health insurance company doesn't have everything that they need, you can provide supplemental information. If your organization wants you to add additional information or data to, or notes to the chart, they'll ask for an addendum. But once a lawsuit comes down or litigation comes down, you cannot touch that chart. So if you check all the boxes legally, even if you miss something that the insurance company wanted or your organization wanted or quality wanted or whoever, 
you can go back and fix that. So focusing on how you're protecting your license and you're caring for the patient from a legal perspective really means understanding the standard of care, basically, right? Like the yeah. standard of care for a patient that you're serving and, and really documenting from a way that makes sense. I think we think like, and, I, and someone, it's so funny, you're talking about the the, the court, like the mini course and, and all the things that are in it. Someone was like, this is crazy. Like, this is what I learned in nursing school. And I'm like, what do you think I'm out here teaching? Magic? <laughs> like, <laughs> there is no magical answer. There is like, this is basic. I'm sorry that like people kept asking me for a resource guide. And I'm like, I don't know what to put in it. So I developed a very simple tool. Like, okay, like this is how I break my notes down. And this is with notes and examples. And someone's like, oh, this is crazy, right? Like, this isn't right. And I'm like, this is right. Like nursing school isn't that far off. They, you, it just becomes convoluted because nursing school doesn't have the noise, the phone calls, the family meetings, like all the things that happen in the healthcare setting, the basics and the core of what's happening in, in nursing school is true. Like it is applicable, but it doesn't necessarily prepare you for all of the outside distractions that are coming in. And so how do you stay true to that, that initial like basic foundational experience of ed in education but also deal with all the noise. And that's where yeah. people like, that's where I'm teaching. I'm teaching you now this next level. Now you're a nurse, right? You, you yeah. stepped outside of this pseudo bubble of like what life could be like with one patient. Now you don't not only have multiple patients, but you also have multiple situations happening at the same time. How do you manage that and protect your license? And now on top of the the typical chaos we're dealing with short staffing and we're dealing with a pandemic and mm -hmm. we're dealing with wearing PPE all day. How do you navigate that? And that's what I teach. And that's what I talk about. And I think people are expecting some crazy, you know, God fearing, like barking situation. I'm like, no, I don't need to talk to you like that because that's not what it's one to one save your life or your license. And it's not going to save the patient, right? We got to get back to the foundational basics attorneys only look at things from extreme cases because that's all that they see. Mm -hmm. But 99% of things that are happening in the healthcare system are not extreme cases. They're yeah. very, they may be nuanced. They may yeah. be specific in very different ways and situations, but it's very basic stuff. So why do we feel like we need to be preparing for some extreme situation when we really should just be being foundational and focusing on those types of elements? So my advice to any nursing student who's coming out of nursing school is to be foundational, like to understand your patient, the patient's care that you're providing and making sure you're documenting that care, understanding that legally you don't have to argue with anyone. I don't, I never tell people that I'm a lawyer. I've been a nurse for 13 years, I've been an attorney for seven. I passed the bar years ago and I still worked in a healthcare setting. I never told anybody I was a lawyer. People would find out eventually, but I would never tell them. But I talk different, I act different, I think different, and I don't argue with nobody. I'm not arguing with you because all I'm going to do is I'm going to write what notes I need to write in a chart. And then if I have a problem with you, I'm going to put an internal incident report or I'm going to send an email to the manager, right? And so you have to walk in a space and in a way where you're confident in what you're saying and doing and what you're doing is actually valuable to the patient versus like trying to get a doctor or a PA or MP or someone to believe you or trust you. Listen, you ain't got to believe me because when I call this rapid response, you're going to realize I wasn't playing, right? <laughs> so that's not lying. Either you're going to come see the patient because I'm telling you something's wrong. My gut is telling me something's wrong. The vitals are a little bit off. The patient's having a change of mental status 
or you're going to wait till there's a rapid response. And now you, you're going to have to interrupt your, your lunch because you didn't want to listen. Right. So, um, that is where I think that, you know, a lot of us are, are, are stuck that we are in this place of trying to create this magic instead of just being foundational. And I think that's kind of the biggest tip I can kind of give to, to nurses, students transitioning into new, to new nurses. That's a, there's a big tip. I, I will say that because I, I'm, I'm listening to this and I think of so many things and so many different instances of like, you know, a day on the unit, right? And one of, one of our, our physicians, so we have like these like interdisciplinary narratives mm-hmm. and one of our physicians called it nurse Twitter one time, because, you know, if, if something's not happening, then they, you know, charting, you know, page so-and-so for so-and-so, you know, MD aware, no response yet or something like that. Right. And to me, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know, we have to do that because if we don't do that, how will somebody know, you know, what we just did to handle this problem. Right. And that becomes tricky because those notes don't necessarily go anywhere unless there's some sort of like litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't go in, in into like the chart per se. So like, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like exist anywhere, okay. but it's okay. still it, it, like, it's like, they're not sticky notes. It's just kind of like these notes that exist that um, we kind of like update patients. You can go back to them at, at any point um, if you have a patient MRN or FIN number, or whatever you're using. Uh-huh. But it's not a note that is that is going to travel with the patient even after uh-huh. they leave. Okay. Um, so they don't get to see that part of it. So it's really an objective, um, you know, text area that you can uh-huh. write. Things. Still very uh-huh. important because a lot of people read those things. Uh-huh. And then we have plans of care. And those are like the bane of my existence because a lot of times it's copy and paste and it doesn't matter where you work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's copy and paste by the physicians um, for, for their notes. Um, I've seen I've seen beautiful notes by physicians that have that literally are like, they outline it by date and mm. what happened during that date. And like, right, <laughs> her niece is like saying, I love you guys. <laughs> It is so great because when you read the attendings note, they're just going to add on, you know, another date and then what the major event of, the, of what happened that day and everything else is, is, is there, you know, the history physical and what we're going to do for that day. But it's one of the most beautiful things I read. And we often print them out to give report to other nurses because it's the most succinct thing planned the day that we're, that we're getting from the team. Uh-huh. Uh, the other avenue of challenge, you know, is the nursing plan of care. It exists, but, it, but no one knows how to do it well. And no one knows how to do it for a transitional model of care in terms of carrying that plan of care with them outside of the hospital setting. It kind of yeah. like stops, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so sometimes, you know, when I think of charting issues, I think of people that struggle with, well, why does this plan of care matter? Because mm-hmm. who's, who's really going to read it, right? Mm-hmm. And they're not wrong because the patient can't, can't take it with them. They're not, you know, carrying mm-hmm. their doctor's appointment and saying like, look at what I did. But you know, it also needs to get done because it's a, it's a legal piece of document, right? And then the other avenue of things is this whole like reporting structure of how do we communicate with each other and, and where does that communication go to in the chart? Yeah, that's that a part yeah. is like always missing. Of always. Like how do we capture that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's real. That's real. And it's a huge challenge for every 
healthcare system, depending yeah. on what an EMR system you're using, which I think yeah. is also like people want specific answers. I'm like, I don't know how to do that on Meditech. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I've used it before, but to give you specifics on like, do this or do that, I just, yeah, beyond. So this was yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to mention yeah. to our people out there? Yeah, I, I would love if you are on LinkedIn, even though I'm I'm on all social media platforms as your nurse lawyer. But if you're on LinkedIn, let's connect. If you're on Twitter, I have a little a little space in that world as well, Instagram. Um, but I'm also building lots of communities outside of there. So um, you know, eventually once you pass, get out of nursing school and you're looking to accomplish your goals. I'm launching one in September, but again, next year, it's like an accountability program is really how I've kind of pushed, like how driven I am as a person put into an, a, a system to help other people be just as driven as I am to kind of reach us a, a goal. So we ch- pick and choose a small thing that we want to work on. And for the next 66 days, we really hit it every single day to make sure we accomplish that goal. So um, there are lots of ways to learn from me, to work with me, to connect with me. Those are all on my social media. If you go to Instagram, I have all of my link trees there. So I would love to, 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 to connect with you guys. And if you reach out and have questions, I can always direct you to the appropriate resources as to where I find things because I'm always reading, studying, looking up stuff. So, uh, you know, I love to support people that way as well. That is so awesome. Those things will also go on the show notes for those listening. Ernice, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I look forward to our discussion again in the future. Yes, thank you.